Welcome to the Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller from WMHT.org. David Allen Miller conducts the Albany Symphony and he provides commentary on the WMHT Live broadcast. David's commentary is full of fascinating stories about the music, the performances, and more. In order to keep the program mostly music, some of what he provides ends up on the cutting room floor. This podcast contains no music, but it does contain all of David Allen Miller's commentary from the concert broadcast on WMHT Live from WMHT-FM, your classical companion. The Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller's commentary for the Albany Symphony concert broadcast is made possible in part by a grant from the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music, supporting nonprofit organizations that have a history of substantial commitment to contemporary music. Our concert began with a fascinating piece by a very exciting young American composer named Andrew Norman. He's a young composer who has an incredible amount of buzz around his name. In fact, last spring, the Los Angeles Philharmonic and Emmanuel Axe gave the world premiere of his new piano concerto, and his works have been performed all over the country and now all over the world. So we were delighted to welcome him. He's a member of a group called Sleeping Giant, a consortium of six very brilliant young composers, all of whom did their graduate work at Yale together. And when they finished school, they all moved to Brooklyn and formed this little cooperative, uh, Sleeping Giant. So we actually, this year, are beginning or embarking on a residency with all six members of Sleeping Giant. Later this year, they'll be doing a sort of reimagining of Mozart's Requiem. They'll be curating our Dogs of Desire concert on our American Music Festival. And next year, we'll be doing a number of different fascinating projects with them as well. So we're delighted to invite and and welcome each of them kind of individually, starting with Andrew, to uh, have a work played by the symphony. So this uh, piece was a piece called Apart, and uh, it's a work that Andrew wrote for the Orpheus Chamber Orchestra. He wrote it a few years ago, and as you may remember, the Orpheus Chamber Orchestra has one very unique uh, defining feature, which is that it plays conductorless something that I personally can't endorse, but uh, they seem to be very successful nonetheless in spite of playing without a conductor. And uh, they do this miraculous thing, one, by being a rather small orchestra. There are only about 25 or 30 players. And two, by really taking on leadership roles within the orchestra. Sometimes the first violinist kind of leads and sometimes one of the wind players leads. But it really is like a sort of expanded version of very sophisticated chamber music. So when Andrew was in invited to write this piece for Orpheus, uh, he began to think about, well, what is it that's so unique and special about Orpheus? And he fashioned a piece called Apart. Now, Andrew's a very uh, intelligent, interesting young man. He's a violist and a pianist and uh, is currently, even though he's in his early 30s, a distinguished professor at the University of Southern California in Los Angeles, uh, which was one of his alma maters along with Yale and other schools. He's from Modesto, California. And he's just a very uh, interesting conceptual thinker as well as a wonderful putter together of notes. So I've always been struck at how beautiful his pieces sound, how wonderful they sound, but also at kind of the very interesting and unique ideas behind them. Like all of his colleagues in Sleeping Giant, he's very interested in this idea of reinterpreting material of how live performance can evolve so that no two performances ever sound quite the same. Uh, He and his colleagues are also very interested in sort of how different kinds of musics are reused uh, and reinterpreted from generation to generation or from piece to piece. Uh, In this piece, because it was written for Orpheus, he began to think about this whole idea of togetherness and what it means to play together. And so since he named the piece Apart, what's fascinating about the piece is that 
Through most of it, none of the string players is ever playing at exactly the same time. In fact, the initial indication to the strings is that every player begins sort of as quickly after the player in front of him or her as possible. So it's not that it sounds like a big mess, and you'll hear in a moment that it actually sounds quite beautiful. What it does is it creates an almost like digital delay, if you know about recording techniques, uh, a sort of live digital delay where you have a, a, a bit of a schmierier sound than you would have if everybody were trying to play absolutely together. And what uh, Andrew does is he, he uses the wind section to kind of clarify and define uh, the line. So they tend to play together during most of it. And then the strings kind of create this wonderful, almost impressionistic wash around it. In the middle, there are very interesting places where it becomes rather freer. The whole idea was about individual freedom and individual expression, this idea of Orpheus playing the piece. Uh, and so at a, a point in the middle of the piece, the winds sort of take the stage and begin to play uh, the same notes, they're notes that are indicated, but kind of in whatever spatial duration they wish. Uh, so lots of very interesting things. And then at the end, there's a very strange passage where individual string players play a series of notes and they are instructed to follow each other very closely. So beam, bum, bum. Bim, bum, bum. So they're almost like one-note solos, and it creates this kind of wonderful uh, first kind of anxious and then kind of relaxed and beautiful sonic cloud. But the idea is that every single player in the orchestra has his or her own very special solo, making him or her unique. So not surprisingly, uh, the question that arises when you hear me describe this piece is, well, what in heaven's name do they need a conductor for? And that was the first question I asked Andrew when he began working on the piece with me, or when I began working on it with him. And what we decided to do was uh, Orpheus plays with a very small string section. And because we have very big pieces on this program, we have essentially double the size of the string section. So we're using twice the number of string players that Andrew originally intended. And that creates more logistical challenges just in terms of everybody kind of knowing where they are. This isn't a piece where everybody just gets to do what they want. It's very tightly organized, but it's very much about different people kind of taking responsibility for their own activities. So I have a little bit of a timekeeping job of sort of conducting the front seat strings and the winds, making sure they know where they are, and then everybody else has to kind of take their cues off of those initial impulses. It sounds much more complicated than it is. I think it's an actually charming, beautiful little piece. I think after Andrew and now my very involved introduction, people were expecting something much more challenging or interesting or multifaceted. It comes out just sounding like a very beautiful little piece of music. Here it is now, Andrew Norman's Apart for Chamber Orchestra, played by the Albany Symphony, sort of conducted by me, David Allen Miller. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org. That was Andrew Norman's piece, Apart, played by the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. It was the first piece on an otherwise altogether Russian program. Uh, the next two works are major masterpieces from the Russian repertoire. The first, the one we're about to hear, is the Rachmaninoff Rhapsody on a Theme of Paganini. I guess not technically a Russian work in that Rachmaninoff worked on it mainly in Switzerland and in the United States, and it was actually premiered by him and Leopold Stokowski leading the Philadelphia Orchestra in Baltimore. Uh, it was written in 1934, and it's uh, Rachmaninoff's last uh, major piano work and last work for piano and orchestra. And it's funny because, you know, Rachmaninoff, if you've ever seen pictures of him, was a tall, very foreboding-looking almost bald gentleman, very gaunt and kind of scary looking. Uh, and yet in this piece, uh, he reveals an incredibly charming sense of humor and of whimsy. He was one of the greatest pianists of the 20th century. In fact, he was once interviewed in Baltimore and they said, are you, Mr. Rachmaninoff, the greatest pianist in the world? And he said, 
Oh, I may be. Uh, no, actually, I may be except for Josef Hoffmann. I think he's better than I am. But he was certainly ranked up there in the top five of all pianists of the day and had incredible technique and performed all of his own pieces and really wrote them for his own use by and large. And he was a very, as I said, foreboding figure and a kind of a, a demonic virtuoso. Although, obviously, Rachmaninoff played the piano, he was often compared to the greatest sort of possessed demonic virtuoso of the 19th century, the early 19th century, the great violinist Niccolo Paganini, who died in 1840. And Paganini also was a tall, gaunt, kind of possessed gentleman. They often said of Paganini that uh, uh, he had made a pact with the devil to be able to play the violin as well as he did, and that, in fact, uh, the, the lower string on his violin was made of the sinews of his his former wife, which was in fact not true, apocryphal story. But uh, Rachmaninoff, I think, was kind of uh, intrigued by this idea of the demonic Paganini. And he also very much liked Paganini's music. When Paganini wrote uh, perhaps the greatest set of solo unaccompanied violin pieces after Bach, the 24 Caprices. And the last, they're devilishly difficult pieces and, and sort of the high watermark of technique for violinists. And the final Caprice is a very famous one, as you probably know. It's the one that goes, and so on and so forth. And uh, Rachmaninoff loved this theme and thought it had great possibilities. So he created a, a rhapsody or, in, in fact, a series of very fanciful and extremely orchestral variations, 24 variations on the 24th Caprice for piano and orchestra. They really run the gamut from very charming to funny to devilishly difficult to exceedingly heart-stoppingly beautiful, that famous 18th uh, variation, which we'll get to in a moment. Uh, and uh, actually, interestingly, I've always found it very interesting that after the work was premiered, uh, Rachmaninoff, a few years later, approached the great uh, choreographer, Fokin, and uh, proposed the idea of Fokin creating a ballet out of this work, the Rhapsody. And Rachmaninoff even went so far as to, to give a very detailed description of how this story about Paganini's life would unfold. It would start of, of this ballet. It would start with uh, you know his carefree brilliance, and then he would fall in love with a woman, and then he would make a pact with the devil, and then he and the woman would dance, and then et cetera, et cetera. He really uh, laid out a very detailed scenario. And I can't help but thinking that even though this specific scenario wasn't in his mind, that uh, in fact, he didn't have these kind of ideas going through his mind as he was setting pen to paper, creating this wonderful, fabulous work. Most of the variations are very brief, and they proceed one after another with virtually no stop. But they do seem to be grouped into sort of a fast opening group, a rather more introspective, dreamy second group, uh, some dances in the middle, and then at the end, it gets very very exciting and, and uh, quite wonderful. Uh, he did say of the, the famous 18th variation, perhaps the most famous thing he ever wrote, the he did say of that, that that one he said is for my agent. I think he knew that he was going to make a lot of money off of that. Uh, it's a fantastic piece of music and a thrilling one as well and, and incredibly taxing for the pianist. In fact, another thing that Rachmaninoff said uh, or that came down to us is that the last variation was so hard that Rachmaninoff, who, as I mentioned, was an incredible pianist, uh, was very nervous at the first performance and not sure he could get through it. So he uh, broke with his usual tradition of never drinking or eating anything before a performance and had a little bit of creme de mint to relax himself before he performed it. So he always referred to the last variation as the creme de mint uh, variation. 
Hear now all of the variations of, of the Rhapsody on a Theme of Paganini. They're played by the brilliant young uh, Van Cliburn winning pianist Joyce Young, an old friend of the Albany Symphony who came and played with us for the very first time when she was a mere 17-year-old and now she's in her late 20s uh, and is playing all over the country and the world. We're delighted to welcome her back, Joyce Young, as soloist in Rachmaninoff's Rhapsody on a Theme of Paganini. The orchestra is the Albany Symphony conducted by me, David Allen Miller. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org. The Conductor's Notes podcast, featuring David Allen Miller's commentary for the Albany Symphony concert broadcast, is made possible in part by a grant from the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music, supporting nonprofit organizations that have a history of substantial commitment to contemporary music. For the final work on our program, I've selected one of my absolute favorite works from the entire repertoire, one of the greatest masterworks of the entire Russian repertoire. It is Tchaikovsky's final symphony, his last symphony, number six, The Pathétique, uh, a piece that, as you probably remember, was written at the very, very end of his life and has a lot of sort of tragic stuff surrounding it in that uh, Tchaikovsky conducted the very first performance and nine days later mysteriously died, ostensibly from poisoning or perhaps self-poisoning during a cholera epidemic. And so the piece has come down to us sort of as a, a death piece or somehow a premonition of Tchaikovsky's death. And there's a lot of rumor that swirls around it and such. Uh, But whatever one takes away from the the actual context of the piece, there's no doubt that this is possibly Tchaikovsky's single greatest utterance and his most mature, developed, fabulously realized piece. You know, Tchaikovsky was a great self-doubter and usually wished to tear up his pieces as soon as he finished writing them. In this case, he knew this was a great piece. And even though the premiere, the first performance that he conducted, didn't meet with the usual complete hysterical approbation that he was used to, uh, he still knew this was probably his greatest work. It's uh, in a typical four-movement form, but that's about the only thing that's typical about it. It has a dramatic, massive first movement that begins in the very depths of the orchestra with the double basses playing actually in divided sections. So they're making chords down there at the bottom of the orchestra, which the basses aren't usually asked to do. And and out of that sort of low, grumbling, uh, subterranean sound world climbs the bassoon, again, one of the lowest instruments in the orchestra, sort of as as if Tchaikovsky is creating his universe or his piece or the world. And in a way, the piece is, or at least Tchaikovsky referred to it early in its in its uh, realization as a piece being all about life, about love, about loss, about death, about saying farewell to the world. And in fact, that's the way I always hear it. There are other theories of it that in fact it's it's about love uh, or about a, a passionate love affair. Uh, to me, the, the life idea seems to make sense. But as with all great works of music, understanding the background and the heritage of the piece or the history of the piece is always interesting. But the piece stands for itself on its own and uh, everyone takes away what he or she feels uh, from a great piece of music and there are no wrong answers or there are no right answers. Uh, There's just what it makes you feel like. So as I mentioned, the work begins uh, in the very bottom of the orchestra and builds up to incredible power in in the development section in the middle of the first movement. The second movement is a very unusual uh, movement. It's a a dance movement, which is not unusual. Usually that's the third movement, but uh, there certainly were other composers who put their scherzo, their, their dance movement, in the second movement. In the case of Tchaikovsky, he writes this beautiful dance that 
mysteriously is in in five. It's in uh, the, the the pulse is five. Usually, you know, dance movements are in three or maybe four or two, but I think it's the only major symphonic work up to at least the 20th century in which the whole movement is in five. So it's da dum da 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 one two three four five one two three four five one two three four five. So it feels like a waltz, and yet it's a constantly irregular waltz that kind of throws you off, but in, in a gentle, beautiful, lilting kind of way. A fascinating idea. And Tchaikovsky was a much more innovative composer than I think many uh, scholars in the past have given him credit for being. So that's the second movement, beautiful kind of very sumptuous, enjoying the beauties of civilization of life. The third movement is the very famous march movement uh, that is so life-affirming and so exciting that uh, audiences simply can't keep themselves from yelling bravo and cheering at the end of it, uh, much to the dismay of many of my conductor colleagues. But I tend to feel that that's the way the whole thing's designed, and then uh, afterwards we hit you with the very unique last movement. The, the third movement is that yum bum ba bum bum ba ba bum ba dum ba dum ba dum bum ba. To me, that's the life force at work, and you'll hear how Tchaikovsky just builds up these little fragments, very difficult string writing, lots of background stuff, but this little march starts appearing, and he builds it and builds it and builds it beyond what any of us mortals imagine a composer could possibly build too. Uh, and it creates that unbelievable animal excitement that causes everybody to go crazy at the end. And then uh, perhaps the greatest innovation and the most singular aspect of this piece. Uh, for the last movement, Tchaikovsky gives us a piece all about death and decay and to my ears saying farewell. It's beautiful, beautiful music with uh, one of the greatest second themes uh, in the entire repertoire. When I sing it, it sounds pretty simple, but with the harmony and in the context of this, this music, it's just the most heart-wrenchingly beautiful thing I can imagine. In essence, what happens here is that the music sort of disintegrates. It, it heads back down into the lower, lowest possible register after a few sort of crises. Uh, and then it ends essentially where it had, began, where it had begun with the basses uh, playing very, very low, low notes and the cellos just above them sort of playing fragments of the theme. And one can't help but hear this music as a farewell to the world because it is in, in essence describing death. Uh, I, I can't imagine that it describes anything else. So the fact that the last movement ended in such an uncharacteristic way and in a non-stand-up-and-cheer uh, way and the fact that Tchaikovsky quoted the, uh, the Russian Orthodox mass uh, in a fragment of the development section of the first movement uh, caused a lot of theories to fly around after Tchaikovsky's uh, untimely death nine days after the premiere. There are a lot of questions as to whether his death was a suicide. He ostensibly or supposedly, according to his brother Modeste, drank a tainted water during a cholera epidemic. Well, Tchaikovsky was certainly intelligent and educated enough to know that you don't drink unboiled water. Uh, and, and if you see pictures of Tchaikovsky at this time, he was 53 years old, which happens to be my age, and I actually brought um, a wonderful book that I have about Tchaikovsky by the great English critic David Brown, which is kind of the definitive text. It's a three-volume Tchaikovsky biography. Uh, and on the, the, the volume that's the final years, there's a picture of Tchaikovsky from the last year of his death. And I, I must tell you, he looks... 87 years old. He certainly doesn't look 53. He, you know, he was a very neurotic, 
a tortured person. He was, as you probably know, a, a, a homosexual man at a time in Russian history in the late 1800s when homosexual, homosexuality was a, an absolute crime punishable by death. So he was never able to be open about his, his sexuality. And, and, and because of that, a great number of things became incredible neurotic obsessions for him and, and difficult, difficult things that otherwise should not have been. So he was a very tortured man, seemingly wonderful, interesting, expressive person. But by this time, 1893, he was pretty worn out and had pretty much had enough. So as to whether his death was a suicide, some years back, a whole very strange story about a that he'd been found with a nobleman's son and that a, a special secret court had convened to demand that he commit suicide. Uh, that has pretty much been debunked. Uh, but uh, you can't help but hear this music and think about life and about death and about Tchaikovsky in a certain way saying a very poignant farewell to life. So however you take it, however you hear it, it is a magnificent piece of music. It is the last work on our program, Tchaikovsky's Pathetic Symphony, his Symphony Number no. 6, performed by the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. Thanks for listening to the Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller of the Albany Symphony Orchestra from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org.